Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome, all you lovely fellow time travelers. It's great to have you with me as we hurtle through history together. A huge thanks to everyone who signed up to my Patreon site. Uh, it makes this podcast possible, so it's great to have your help and support there. I really appreciate it, and I thank every single one who has become a subscriber to my Patreon channel. Uh, if you're not a member yet and you want to join, go to patreon.com and just look for me by name, Neil Oliver. Every week you'll get a new video, which I film here at my home in Stirling. Uh, they're a mix of history and comment, hopefully thought-provoking, Plenty to get your teeth into. That's what we aim for anyway. Uh, right, now it's time for this week's podcast, uh, my love letter to the British Isles, as we step into the torrent of words flowing along Fleet Street. Cue the music. Where you have those places that you think will always be there, places that you think are permanent, it's worth paying attention to them because the chances are one day you'll close your eyes or you'll turn around and the next time you look, gone. In this episode, we follow an ancient river running beneath the hurly-burly of London above. Running underground to join Old Father Thames, the River Fleet gave its name to the street above, which would become a byword for the British press. In the 16th century, Vincent de Voort set up shop here with his printing press, and the foundations of a tradition were laid. A torrent of words started to flow down Fleet Street. In 1702, the capital's first newspaper, the Daily Courant, was published. The penny press's popularity skyrocketed, and a national obsession was born, or perhaps revealed, and we became a public always hungry for the news. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil, in the last episode we stepped ashore on an enchanted desert island where it's still possible to catch a glimpse of magic. Where are we this week? Yeah, Paul, you're right. Uh, We travelled to my ultimate desert island last week. Beautiful, calm, quiet. Uh, The preserve of nature. And this week couldn't be more different. We're smack bang in the middle of London. People rushing round, traffic roaring, shouts and noise blaring out from everywhere. We're in the midst of the pounding heart of the British press with gossip and scandal, exposés and politics ringing in our ears. We're at St Bride's Church on Fleet Street. We're in one of the most famous, infamous locations in the whole of London, I would say. It's Fleet Street. 
It's not just people in London, not just people in England or Britain. It's all around the world. People know what Fleet Street means, and it means newspapers, the media, the press. And I've, like you, I mean, I think all, all our lives there was talk of Fleet Street. And I suppose, as most people know now, there are no newspapers in Fleet Street. They've all moved out to Canary Wharf and other places, Wapping, and there's no newspapers on Fleet Street. And yet still, the world talks about Fleet Street because they know that everybody knows they're talking about the British media. What does Fleet Street say about this? What's happening on Fleet Street? That alone tells you that there's something very special about what happened on Fleet Street. The fact that it didn't just matter when it was the heart of things, literally, physically, but even once its day had passed and all the key players had moved elsewhere, it's still, it's still the, the byword for journalists, the people that are supposed to be covering, reporting, sniffing about and finding out what's going on. Fleet Street's actually named for a river. It was a tributary of the Thames, and like so many other tributaries of the Thames, smaller rivers that ran into Old Father Thames, Fleet Street, which was the largest, it's the largest of the tributaries, it's been completely forced underground. What was once a river, I mean, eventually it joins the Thames at a point beyond Blackfriars Bridge, but by then, really, I mean, it's, it's not a river now. By the time it passes underneath the east end of Fleet Street, where you've got Ludgate Circus, that's the, the, the junction there, it's just a sewer. It, literally. It's just a means by which the filth of the city above is carried away. Fleet is actually Anglo-Saxon, which is lovely. We spell it F-L-E-E-T, but there's an Anglo-Saxon word, flute, which is spelled F-L-E-O-T, and it means a tidal inlet, which is how the Anglo-Saxons regarded it. For the longest time, you had a, a fast-flowing river there, and there were mills along the banks of it, using green energy, <laughs> you would say, you know, using water wheels to power mills and all the rest. And it functioned in that way for the longest time. But then, gradually, gradually, London grew, London developed, the roads were laid and built upon, and the buildings were raised above, and for the longest time, Fleet Street was home to the nation's papers. So you had like the Times, the Telegraph, the Sun, the old current bun, the Daily Express, which when I did my journalism training, after I was an archaeologist for a few years, I retrained as a, as a journalist. And part of it, I was sent for, uh, you know, block release to Napier College, as it was then in Edinburgh, now Napier University. And one of our lecturers was a guy called Bill Alsop. And he and his day had been a a Daily Express legend in the days of like Lord Rothermere and all that, you know, checkbook journalism. The Daily Express was such a powerful, wealthy paper. Bill used to talk about how if there was a big story breaking, there was a helicopter on the roof and they would just jump in the helicopter and get the head start on all the other newspapers. And he was able to turn up places. And if there was, if people needed to have money to tell their story, he would have the biggest checkbook and all that. The Daily Express is it's not that now, you know, it's a kind of a gossipy rag in many ways, but it, it, some of these papers were so powerful, so influential, they told people what to think. A 
As a young trainee, did you want to work on Fleet Street? Well, yeah, I did. I, 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 I'll be honest, I kind of fell into newspaper journalism because I was working as an archaeologist and I had realised after a few years of just going from dig to dig that I was going to be 40 one day with arthritis and never be able to afford the mortgage on a house. <laughs> I'd become realistic about the financial potential of, of archaeology, which was the subject that I loved, but I really couldn't make a, a proper living out of it. So I, I looked around and I, I, the opportunity that presented itself was to join a local newspaper in Dumfries and Galloway, where I grew up, actually in the town of Annan, which is not far from Dumfries, where my, my parents lived and, my, you know, where I went to school. And I, I, I was able to go in and join the paper on what was known in the old days as an indenture. I signed up for three years and I worked, you know, just as a, as a day-to-day journalist covering, you know, the court and the council and, you know, going out and looking for stories and going to agricultural shows and writing up about the horse jumping and the, and the judging of the cattle. And in return, they trained me. So they paid for me to do shorthand and typing and they paid for me to go Twice I went to Napier to learn things like Scots law for journalists and newspaper practice. And and so we sat in classrooms and we were taught by people like Bill Alsop, who had done his time as a a hard-bitten news journalist and now he was in semi-retirement lecturing about journalism. But I kind of fell into it. It hadn't really been my plan. But then it was great. I've always, I've said ever since that learning to do shorthand and typing has been more used to me than my degree or my driving license. <laughs> the yeah. best things I ever learned how to do were shorthand and even better, touch typing. It changed my life. You know, when it comes to writing, if you can touch type on a keyboard, it's, it's a Damascene moment when you realise that you can compose words faster than you can think them in your head. Anyway, anyway, so in answer to your question there, I did start to think, well, you know, maybe when I've, when I've finished my training, I'll, I'll go south. So many people did, you know, they went down and joined the Sun or they, they joined the, the Daily Mail. That did happen. My then girlfriend, my now wife, Trudy, uh, she trained as a journalist. Um, she really wanted to be a journalist and she trained at DC Thompson's, the legend that is up in Dundee, you know, the Sunday Post and the Dundee Courier and all of that. And then she subsequently went down to London and she worked for the Daily Mail for a lot of years. And, and so she, you know, she was pulled into the London orbit as well. And her paper wasn't on Fleet Street, but everyone still talked about Fleet Street, by which they meant journalists and newspapers. Fleet Street really reached its peak uh, you know, the 19th and the 20th centuries. But the fact is that it actually started to happen in the 16th century. A German immigrant called Rinken de Vord, who had worked under William Caxton, he of the printing press. Now, de Vord, he set up a printing shop right next to St Bride's Church. Now, St Bride's Church sits down a lane off of Fleet Street. It's kind of hidden by Fleet Street. If you look up, you can see the spire. The building, St Bride's Church, was designed by Sir Christopher Wren. At the same time, uh, you know, when the the Great Fire of London destroyed old St Paul's Cathedral and he got the commission to build what is there now. Well, he had other jobs on the side and one of them was St Bride's Church. And the steeple's very distinctive. It's got kind of a tiered shape. And the the legend has it that it inspired the shape of wedding cakes. 
you know, and not the other way around. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Vincent de Verd, he set up a printing shop next to St Bride's Church and he printed books and sold them. So Fleet Street's entry into printing, it started not with newspapers but with books. And he had, a, he had a stall where he was, uh, stalls in various places where he was selling his books. One of them was in the churchyard of old St Paul's Cathedral. The St Paul's Cathedral that was there before, the one that we're all familiar with now. So be, before the Fire of London? Before the Fire of London, yeah. So uh, newspapers came later. Uh, and by 1702, the first newspaper in the capital was operating. It was called the Daily Courant, C-O-U-R-A-N-T, Current, the Daily Current. And it was published in Fleet Street. So that was 1702. It wasn't until 1769 that there was a second. It was called the Morning Chronicle. And you have to imagine the Fleet Street of that time. A lot of it was pubs and coffee shops, coffee houses, tea houses. And people were already gathering there to sit and drink and gossip. It was a place where people went to catch up on the news, verbally. You'd go to Fleet Street and sit in and, and find out what was going on. It was a den of gossip. And so by a, a strange sort of osmosis, the newspaper started in there to feed, to feed that, that already present curiosity. It was all gossip and tittle-tattle and people gathering to swap stories. And so what became known as the Penny Press just took off. And where there had been only one and then just two, they began to breed like rats. You know, there were Penny Press, all these little titles all circulating leaflets and newspapers and, and all the rest of it. And so where water had flowed, long since disappeared by this point, pushed under the ground, a river of, of water that had powered the mills of the past, you know, before joining the Thames at the inlet that the Anglo-Saxons had noticed and called the fleet. Now it was a river of words, a torrent of words coming out of Fleet Street. And there's a funny thing, it's hard to know, it's a, a chicken and egg thing, i.e. which came first, but the British people, as it turned out, were fanatically interested in the news. And once, once Fleet Street started pushing out these, these titles and once that, that industry took off, it was, a real, it was a real phenomenon. Visitors, people coming from Europe, people coming from France and whatever, they couldn't believe how gossipy and news-hungry British people were. And for the longest time, in the days of newspapers, the Brits, by orders of magnitude, were the most voracious buyers and readers of newspapers in Europe. Nobody else had anything like it. Across the Atlantic in the States, they were hearty consumers of news as well. But, but let's remember that they had probably taken that hunger with them because the earliest, all the signatories of the Declaration of Independence were British. You know, young America was British. And so it was probably already infected with that appetite for news. But even, even in America, it never got to the, to the variety of homegrown press that we have had the variety of titles, the number of titles, and the number of units sold. The circulation of newspapers in Britain mystified the rest of the world. We were, we were just so desperate for it. So we're, we are a fascinated, curious people. We are nosy neighbours. It's in us. And the newspapers fed it. It wasn't the presence of the newspapers that did it, because, as I say, we were already gossipy and desperate for news and, and keeping track on each other. And the newspapers really just came in to feed that hunger. 
right at the beginning as well, I mean, people talk about how uh, different titles favour one political ideology or another. You know, The Guardian, traditionally left-wing, of course it is. The Independent was traditionally of this of this a centre ground, or tried to be. And then you had the, the Daily Mail, which was fascist in the 1930s. It was, it was trumpeting, you know, Hitler and, you know, fascism. The Daily Mirror grew up in its alongside it and was de- determinedly left-wing. And some of that DNA is still there in the surviving titles. You know, the day of the print newspapers selling in the millions every day or the hundreds of thousands every day, it's gone. But news is still circulating and a lot of it's online now. You know, the Daily Mail online and the Independence online and the Guardians online, you can consume all your, all your news, you know, not with paper that stains your fingers, but off a glowing screen that you carry about in your pocket. But the biases and the partisanship is still there. That hasn't really changed. But it was in the 1980s that the newspaper, the traditional newspaper industry of Fleet Street died. It had run its course. For one thing, the unions had absolutely got the newspaper industry by the scruff of the neck. The printers' unions and the journalists' unions were extremely powerful and they dictated terms to the owners. They were down in tools and walking out at the drop of a hat. Constant strikes. And really, tragically for the industry, there had long been a practice of claiming salaries for non-existent people. And it was blatant. I mean, some of the some of the people who were, in inverted commas, employed and for which there was a pay had names like D Duck and M Mouse. <laughs> it was blatant, blatant fraud, and divvying it up. I mean, it was corrupt. The whole thing was corrupt. And so, the, I mean, the unions. It's a shame because the union movement, the trades union movement, you know, came from those honourable foundations where people were just wanting a fair day's pay for a fair day's work and. Somewhere along the line, that honourable pursuit was corrupted. Do you think it was part of systemic corruption that went right the way up to the owners? It's a it's a good it's a good question, Paul. Um, uh, I think you know power corrupts, doesn't it? It's one of the oldest truisms, isn't it? And the the unions, you know, they they had mass membership. And with that mass membership came power. And that power was corrupting of the people who were looking after those unions. And the tragedy is that it came back to bite them. You know, I mean, you know, we, we've talked in the love letter, we talked about the toll puddle martyrs, you know, and how people put upon working people, dreadfully exploited by owners and landowners and the rest, coming together to form brotherhoods and sisterhoods, trying to have a, a collective voice to try and make their lives better. It came from such an honourable place, but it was twisted and it was misused. And ultimately, the press barons just decided to, to bite back. Eventually, it was Rupert Murdoch what done it, as the son would have had it. And he was backed by Margaret Thatcher, who was the Prime Minister at the time. And he just went to war on it. And they, they just broke the unions. They moved wholesale out of Fleet Street. They established new locations, you know, whopping. They were ferrying the journalists that were willing to work in the new locations through the pickets and through the picket lines and, and all the rest of it. It was an ugly time uh, that a lot of us remember. At the same time, maybe it wouldn't have happened the way that it did, but for the fact that new technology was on the rise as well. The fledgling, the little itty-bitty chicks that grew up into the internet 
those eggs cracked and opened up in the 1980s. You know, the new technologies were coming in that people didn't really see it at the time, but again, it undermined the power. You don't need printers if you're not if you're not printing with hot metal anymore. You know, that was an art and it was a trade, you know, hot metal. But then that was replaced. And the way in which the newspaper pages were assembled, it all changed. And rather than people doing it on the, you know, on the print room floors, it was it was done on screen. It was a perfect storm. And the the technology in many ways enabled the owners to crack down. You know, the power of the unions was undone by technology as much as by anything else. And, you know, you're looking back on it. I always remember the jam, Paul Weller singing The Public Wants What the Public Gets. And the red top papers like The Sun and The Mirror, by that time they had sort of metamorphosed into something where they were, you know, rather than the news, it was all about following soap opera stars and, you know, and grabbing photographs of, of people having bad hair days and, you know, coming out the gym with sweat stains and all the rest of it. The whole The whole thing just became trivial and really... If you were on a diet of the red tops every day, you know, people were just punch drunk on it. And then, of course, in the 1990s, it was about Diana, Princess of Wales. That was part of the end as well. She wasn't the first, you know, the the newspapers had long been obsessed with celebrity and Hollywood stars and whatever. But really, in the case of Diana Spencer, they had a bona fide princess to hunt down. And as we know, you know, she was a youngster barely out her teens when she got swallowed up by the by the firm that is the royal family. And she kind of, I don't know, I think to begin with, she probably just stepped unknowingly into the crosshairs of the media. She found herself a focus. And they called her Lady Di and Princess Di and the People's Princess and all the rest of it. But they crossed, a line was crossed. And during the 1990s, Diana, Princess of Wales and the press brought out the worst in each other. There was misbehaviour on both sides, but there's no getting away from the fact that Diana ended up dead in a tunnel under Paris and died while more flashbulbs were going off from paparazzi who had followed her into the tunnel and all the rest of it. It was a terrible mess and she ended up, well, her life was cut short. And yet in the aftermath, I don't think really the lessons were learned. There was some lip service paid to privacy and whatnot, but now we've got a media that's every bit as intrusive and anyone that anyone that gets in the way of that I mean it's a, you could say that Fleet Street still exists as a torrent of words, most of them online, and there are Leviathans and sharks that swim in that water. And if you get in the water with them, you know, a lot of people end up chewed up and spat out in bits. And it's, it's worth remembering as well that at least for a time when it was the newspapers, they were edited and you could say that they were under a certain control. And at least if you were buying a, a newspaper, a, a recognised title, you would either agree or not agree with the ideology of its owners. But you had some security in thinking that what you were reading had a basis in truth. And people could be sued for inaccuracies and for printing lies. But there's no such constraints online. Anyone can set up what seems to be a news outlet online and you've got no way of knowing who's editing that. If it even is being edited, you've got no way of knowing if it's fact or fiction that you're reading. Some of it is. Some of it's bona fide, but it's very difficult to sort the wheat from the chaff. So there we go, you know, it, it, it started in the 16th century, 
you know, during the 1700s, the penny press evolved to feed the appetite that was already there for gossip. It reaches its heyday without a shadow of a doubt in the 20th century. The newspapers, the popularity and the power of the newspapers. And then during the 80s with the crushing of the unions and then in the 1990s, you know, people, I think a lot of people came out of the 1990s with a different view about the news. Lines had been crossed and it was different. And yet, and yet, and yet, Fleet Street's still worth a visit. For people that are interested in, in things news, it's still there. There are still glimpses. You know, if, if you walk, it's about a mile along Fleet Street from Temple Bar to Ludgate Circus. And if you look up, you know, if you look up from the pavement, you know, you'll, for a start, there's the pubs that the hacks used to go into. El Vino is at number 47. Ye Old Cheshire Cheese is at number 145. The Punch Tavern at number 99. Um... You'll see the Daily Telegraph building. Above the door, there's twin Mercury's. You know, Mercury's the, the messenger. That's between 135 and 141. Uh, the Reuters building, Reuters News Agency, that's at number 85. And that was designed by Edwin Lutyens, who designed the, the Cenotaph and the castle on Lindisfarne. The Reuters building was his. There's a bronze globe with fame sitting on top of it, blowing a trumpet as she would and should. And across the road, uh, there's the Art Deco splendour of, of what was the Express Building. It's all uh, you know, black glass and chrome. And in, in its in its heyday, those that, that didn't care much for the for the Express called it the Black Lubyanka, <laughs> <laughs> a reference to the mysterious headquarters of the of the secret police. <laughs> DC Thompson, DC Thompson, the same that were Dundee based, Scotland based. Uh, they were the last to abandon the, their office in Fleet Street. They were there at the end number 185, and the bricks built into the frontage of the building in different coloured bricks. You see the titles, the Sunday Post, People's Friend, the People's Journal, the Dundee Courier. And that building looks, and those titles sound just too couthy, really, for the, <laughs> for, the, for the modern world. So if you're standing at the Reuters building, there's a lane right with a little anonymous break in the in the frontage of the street and it leads to St Bride's Church that we already mentioned and you know and it's it's where it, or it's in the vicinity of where Vincan de Vord had his shop he that was the first to print anything on in the vicinity of Fleet Street and it's the journalist's church my wife she attended at least one funeral in there of I think if memory serves it wasn't a journalist I think it was a woman who had been a picture researcher for the Daily Mail but it was where funerals of people involved in the newspaper industry were traditionally held. Marriages as well, isn't it? In fact, I think Rupert Murdoch married Jerry Hall there a few years ago. Uh, that would be right, yeah. And it, it, it's the spiritual home of journalists, I suppose it would call itself, without a hint of irony. And there's been a church there for 1,500 years. You know, the present building is not... <laughs> it's just the latest iteration. Uh, as I say, the one that's there now is principally the work of Sir Christopher Wren, Everywhere was laid waste by the Great Fire of London and St Bride's was one of those that had to be rebuilt and he got the job, along with St Paul's Cathedral. Um, it's a very tall spire, which you kind of overlook because it's so sort of, it's surrounded, it's completely swallowed up by the wider city. But it's a very impressive building in its own right. It was destroyed, gutted by incendiary bombs during the Blitz, 1940. So it was burnt to the ground. It was left a, a blackened shell and so what you see now is a renovation that was completed in 1957. 
But churches are like that. You know, churches, you know, you have a site which is a place of worship. And if you look back into the history, there are, there are invariably many versions that have come and gone. Every other pew or every pew really is dedicated to a name you'd recognise, like the, the Lord's Rothermere or Ross Benson, <laughs> you know, figures from the media world. Uh, but nonetheless, you stand in there, you stand in that church and look around. I was in there with my wife, actually. We were down having a weekend in London and we, we wandered in and it was empty. And it was like a metaphor for the fact that the journalists are gone from Fleet Street. It, it says something to me. I suppose other people will have found other symbols for this, but there's something about Fleet Street that is a lesson in impermanence. Because I grew up and you just took Fleet Street for granted and just imagined it would always be there, but it's not. The birds have flown. But impermanence is all around us. The St Paul's Cathedral that we see in London today, again, is just the latest replacement for something else long gone. Uh, so the newspaper titles have all moved elsewhere. Print journalism is, goodness, how it hangs on in there, I don't know, because those people who consume news now, surely the majority of them are consuming it electronically via their phones and via their tablets and whatever. That said, that said, we are at least as hungry for news now as we ever were. And the problem, the problem is knowing whether you're reading something that's worth reading or not. Because as I mentioned before, once upon a time, the news was between riverbanks, metaphorically speaking. It was directed. It was overseen by editors and, and others who had been trained in keeping to the straight and narrow. Uh, but now the news, the news that's available online is a flood, unconstrained. It's burst its banks now. And it's anyone's guess when you're out there what's fresh water and what's drinkable and what's just sewage that should be <laughs> underground like the fleet itself. But it's a, it's a fascinating place to visit and, and look around and where you have those places that you think will always be there, places that you think are permanent, it, it's worth paying attention to them because the chances are one day you'll close your eyes or you'll turn around and the next time you look, gone. must have been a heady atmosphere with so many rapacious journalists all on the same street. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, it must... The truth is, it was, it, was, it was gone, really. By the time I was there, it was already gone. But we've all heard the stories about, you know, I mean, it was a big drinking culture, and the journalists came and went from the pubs. They were in the pubs on Fleet Street, getting stories or meeting contacts and drinking. And then, just before deadline, they would go back to their offices and type up the story. And off it would go. Off the story would go, and the papers would be printed. And then they'd go back to the pub again. It was such a, such an alcoholic culture, the journalism at that time. But it was a world unto itself, and it was a craft. You know, newspaper journalism was it is a craft. I mean, I'm delighted that I was taught it by people that were of that world. You know, I, I was in the presence of those that had ruled the roost in Fleet Street. And when they talked about it, they were talking about somewhere that was almost a religion. And, you know, they were so passionate about it and they had wielded so much power via their titles, you know, via the Daily Express, via the Times, you know, and, the, you know, the Thunderer and all the rest of it. They were so influential, so significant. And the people that bought them up, you know, the Lords Rothermere and so on, you know, that wanted to control, because they knew as, you know, God, as, you know, as Goebbels said, if you want to control people, get control of the media. 
If you control the message that's going out, look at us now. The government has spent the last couple of years paying, paying for propaganda to be printed in our newspapers. You know, and you read it and you because it's coming under the cover of a newspaper title or a news organisation, of course you think it's the unbridled truth. But as things turn out, we've been fed propaganda. But to some extent, there's, there's nothing new about that. The titles from time to time have always propagandised and they've always pushed agendas and they've always been ideologies vying with one another, left and right, vying for control. And so it was and so it still is. a Pope shot and a former actor becoming the most powerful person in the world a year of famous headlines but one touches me most of all off the breathtakingly beautiful wild Cornish coast the weather whipped up a horror show a ship was in terrible trouble engines down and drifting helplessly the Pen Lee lifeboat was launched watching from a helicopter above an officer described them as truly the greatest eight men I have ever seen. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter and please do write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.